Our scripture this morning is Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we did not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. I'm so glad you've joined us for corporate worship this morning as we continue working through this great book of Romans and indeed another week, uh, even a, a few verses this week, just a few in this great chapter of Romans uh, chapter 8. Perhaps you've heard or you know of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. He, he started uh, or he ended many of his compositions with the initials SDG, we've, we've spoken of that before, the, the phrase solely in his compositions as well. At the beginning of many of his uh, musical compositions, he would write the initial JJ, and that was Jesu Juvia, which is Jesus' help in Latin. He knew, I think, as one who had faith in, in the living God, he knew that if he was going to get to the end of that composition and it was going to be one that he could put SDG on, then at the beginning, what he was going to need was JJ. He was going to need help from God. Now, Paul, in, in the book of Romans, and specifically in Romans 8, has been clear with the realities of the Christian life, that, that life in the Spirit and the life that the Christian now experiences is a life that's full of all kinds of present sufferings. It's a life that's full of those sufferings that's then moving to a life of future glory. And during the sufferings of this present time, there's going to be groaning, there's going to be waiting. But God doesn't relinquish his people in their groaning and in their waiting and said, well, I'll see you on the other side when we finally get to glory. Now, the composition of the Christian life is not one that doesn't have notes of suffering, but it doesn't have those notes of suffering without the initials of God's help all along written within and through it. God himself helps his people in the midst of their groaning, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of all that's going on, and in the midst of their waiting for glory. SDG, glory, is coming, but help is needed now, and God helps. He, he writes it into the very beginning through his spirit that indwells those who are his. And so Paul gives these two great verses here, 26 and 27, that believers might take heart knowing the Spirit's ministry in their own lives. That the Spirit helps, that the Spirit intercedes, and the Spirit intercedes specifically. The, the context of the Spirit's ministry in, in verses 26 and 27 is one of suffering and groaning and waiting for future glory. And in that context, Paul writes, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Let's remember who Paul speaks of when he says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is the Spirit, verse 9, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. This is the Spirit who is one with the Father and one with the Son. He is the Spirit who is co-equal with the Father and the Son, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, to be worshipped right alongside with the Father and the Son as the third person of the Trinity. And we see a sense of the seriousness of the person of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, where the, the apostles are doing great works by the power of the Spirit, and some seek to oppose it. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They lie to the Spirit, and it's equated by Peter as lying to God, and they have serious consequences for their lying to God. They both 
drop down dead. And it's that same spirit and this ministry of the spirit that Paul speaks of here in Romans chapter 8. God himself. And, and what he says is that God himself, the spirit, helps us in our weakness. God, by his spirit, dwells in those who are, verse 1, in Christ Jesus by their faith in him. And it's that spirit, God himself, who helps us. What a thought. God helps us. The Spirit helps us. In the Scripture, we could look all sorts of places and see God's help. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, our very present help in times of trouble. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It only comes from one place. It comes from the Lord. That God is the same God who's, who's helping us here in, in the Gospels. Jesus, he, he goes and he sees the crowd and, and he says of them one time, it says of them in the Gospels, that they are helpless. They look helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus do? He meets them in their helplessness as one who is their help. And he promised to his disciples before he left, I'm going to send you a helper. And who is the helper that he sends? He sends the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He helps. It's already been present in chapter 8. How is one set free from the law of sin and death? It's by the Spirit. How does a Christian walk? Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. <laughs> by the Spirit. How does a Christian set their mind on the things, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit? It's by the power of the Spirit that dwells in them. How is one to put to death the deeds of the body? By the power of the Spirit. How is one to know if they're a child of God? By the Spirit that cries out within them. How are Christians to have the hope of future glory in the midst of their present sufferings? How are they to have hope in any suffering? How are they to wait with patience? Like God doesn't leave his people. He doesn't leave Christians to fend for themselves in their suffering, in their groaning, in their waiting. He gives them help. And that help dwells within them. We know him as the Holy Spirit. If you've been around Sojourn long enough, you've, you've heard something of hobbits, which I think is great. Hobbits prefer comfort and the safety of their own homes. They're, they're not creatures that seem to be particularly made for perilous quests. That's how Tolkien would describe them. They're weak, like us. But a perilous quest finds one. Frodo Baggins, he comes into possession of this ring of power, and a quest is in front of them. And, and he's faced with a decision of what to do with this ring, whether or not to bear this ring to Mordor, as that's the only place where it could be destroyed, or not. That's his decision. That's the quest in front of them. Go and destroy this ring and its evil power, knowing that you're not one that's made for perilous quests kind of like this, knowing your own weakness, knowing that the path to Mordor is full of all kinds of dangers that are bigger than you are. And as he's facing this decision, Gandalf comes and he lays his hand on the shoulder of Frodo. And he says this, I will help you bear this burden as long as it is yours to bear. Christian, God says the same to you. In your suffering, in your groaning, in your waiting, God says, right, I'm going to help you bear this as long as it is yours to bear until you reach that glory that I spoke of. The Spirit helps us. And in this great chapter, notice where all this help comes from over and over again. Notice where the assurance comes from. Notice where the hope comes from. 
all this stuff that's going on, how does hope come in our suffering? How, how do we wait with patience? Where does our help come from in this chapter? Truly, we have all the help we need in God. He helps us get all the way from our present sufferings to glory. He, he gets us and helps us from salvation all the way to glorification. He's our help. And this help, what it is in chapter 8, it is it's no excuse for passivity. The same word help is used in Luke chapter 10. This is the story of Martha and Mary. Martha's working really hard. Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha kind of takes offense at this. And, and she says, why don't you tell her to help me? To, to get alongside me. That's the, the idea of this word. And that's the help here. It's, it's help that's for us and it's with us. So there's no passivity with this help as if we sit back again and let the Spirit just do everything and navigate everything that's going on. There's no passivity. The Spirit helps us. He's alongside us. He's for us and He's with us. And He helps us in what? In our weakness. Now that's a general term. It could be all kinds of weakness. There's weakness all over our lives. But notice that He can help us in our weakness so that our weaknesses are no obstacle to life with God. What good news! Right? Like our weakness is not an obstacle to living life the way God designs us to live. Like the Spirit helps us and the Spirit indwells us. And so we're to walk in newness of life. Walk according to the Spirit. Set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the body. We're to wait for future glory. We're to have hope in the midst of our suffering. How are we doing that? By the power of the Spirit. Not by the Spirit taking over us, but by actively doing those things ourselves as the Spirit is for us and with us as our help. And so our weaknesses are no disadvantage. I, I heard this first from Alistair Begg, but I've seen it other places. But he said this, if dependence is the objective, weakness is an advantage. And so can we just readily admit today that we have lots of advantages? And we can even boast in them. Because what those weaknesses do, those advantages do, is they throw us upon a God who has no weaknesses, lacks no strength, and who is our very present help. So in places of weakness where we rely on God, he proves himself over and over again as the one who is faithful, the one who is strong, the one who sustains us and keeps us, that can move us all the way from salvation to glorification. And so those weaknesses turn out to be what for us? An advantage. Christian, let me ask you this. Are you, are you embracing weakness as an advantage so it'll throw you upon this good God again? So that you'll see him as the faithful one. So you'll see him as the one who is your help. So you'll see him as your strength, your refuge, your salvation. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He doesn't leave us passive in our walking, our waiting, our hoping, our suffering, our groaning, but he indwells us to empower us to live the life that God made us to live. He doesn't leave us floundering in the delusion of self-sufficiency. He comes to be our help, and he leads us to dependence upon the one true living God. And so the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And while this weakness is a, a general term, it could speak of any kind of weaknesses, and our weaknesses are all over, and the Spirit's help is all over, Paul focuses the weakness and he focuses the help in this passage to give a particular encouragement to those who are suffering and groaning, as we just read in verses 18 through 25, to strengthen hope. Paul pinpoints the weakness and he pinpoints the help in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. To be a Christian is to understand, at least in some part, partially, weakness. It's to have at least understood enough to turn to a God who can save us. So there's some understanding of weakness in every Christian. And, and here's what is also implied here, is that those who are Christians who have the Spirit dwelling in them, that they pray. He, he doesn't give a command here of that. He just knows that that's what's happening. Christians pray. It's expressed trust in God. Prayer is one of the primary expressions of trust in God, of faith in God. It's the child of God that cries out in Romans chapter 8, Abba, Father. What is that but a, a, a crying out in our pain and our suffering, independence and trust, Upon this Father. So that we could say that prayerlessness would show that one is not what Romans 8 would describe as a child of God. Not looking to the Father. Not trusting in Him. No need for Him. So prayerlessness is practical atheism. You can live life apart from Him just fine. But especially in chapter 8, what prayer is, is it's an expression of trust and need. One author calls it acknowledged helplessness. That's prayer. And while prayer is an admission of weakness, Paul, again, he pinpoints this weakness in prayer itself by saying we don't know what to pray for as we ought. It's not that Christians don't know how to pray, as if we don't know the manner of prayer, although that may be true as well. He says that Christians don't know what to pray. That's, that's content. They don't know what to pray as they ought. In verse 27, he's going to say that the Spirit himself intercedes according to the will of God. So it seems as if this what, that content that we don't know about, has to do in some sense with, with some of God's will. Some of God's will is revealed for us. We have his word. This is God's will revealed. We can read it and we can see what does God want? What is what does he desire? What does he wish? What does he not like? What does he like? We open up the word and we say, that's the will of God. It's revealed for us. It can be known. And you can pray in accordance with that will that you see and is known. But some of God's will isn't known. All right, how are Christians to navigate? Like, think about the Roman code. How are all these Christians in Rome to navigate all the intricacies of living life in a pagan culture? There are many questions that are specific to their culture and situation that they wouldn't have had revealed will, will from God for. So how are they to pray in those circumstances? How are we to pray in our circumstances, in our cultural setting? How are we to navigate sufferings when, when we don't have a specific reason maybe for the suffering? We, we don't know what God's will is for our suffering. and It's not specifically revealed to us. How are we to pray? Now, one commentator says this, that then, that the weakness of believers in prayer, therefore, is that they do not have an adequate grasp of what God's will is when they pray. Because of our finiteness and fallibility, we cannot fully perceive what God would desire. And in this, notice what Paul isn't doing. Paul is not confronting Christians for this. He's not berating them. He's not saying, what, what, you didn't know this. What's the problem? He's just stating it as a fact. You don't know what, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Paul knew it himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you see some of Paul, he opens up a bit about some of his prayer. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. This is when this thorn in the flesh is given to him. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And here's the prayer. Three times I pleaded with God about this, that it should leave me. That's not a bad prayer, right? Seems like a really good prayer. It's okay, I think, to pray for God to remove thorns. It's definitely okay for you to say, God, would you please remove the messengers of Satan in my life? That's a good prayer, right? Seems to be in accordance with God's will. That would seem to be actually a slam dunk case for saying, you are praying in accordance with God's will. But look at verse 9. But he said to me, this is God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul didn't fully know God's will there, did he? He, he prayed in weakness, and he didn't fully know what he needed himself. God knew. And, and so Paul's request was denied, but he was answered in prayer, which I think is pretty beautiful. Paul didn't know God's will. He didn't know fully what he needed, but God did. And in that answer that God actually gave him, Paul learned something great. Oh, God's grace is sufficient even in the midst of this. His power is going to be shown in this weakness. And so he starts boasting in his weakness even more, writing it publicly for a church that kind of already has a problem with his perception already. And he's going to tell them about his weakness and boast about it. That's what he learned in that prayer. He didn't get the answer that he was seeking. He got the one that he actually needed. He got something better than what he actually prayed because he didn't know what to pray for as he ought. If he would have known what God knew, he would have prayed that way. Help me to understand that your grace is sufficient, that your power can be shown and displayed in my weakness. But Paul didn't get what he originally prayed for. He got something better. That is just like God, isn't it? When his children ask for fish, he doesn't give them a serpent. He actually gives them the best thing that they can have. He answers better than they know. And Paul wants Christians to, to know that they have help in their weakness when they don't know what to pray for as they ought. That, that, that's no excuse, again, for not knowing God's will, what we can know. Like, he wants this in, in Romans chapter 12. He wants us to be able to discern the will of God. We, we need to be able to work hard at that. But there's also no rebuke here for not knowing some of it. There's no rebuke for how dare you pray in this way, not knowing what God's will is in this situation. He doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke them or confront them about their weakness. He just says, God, he's going to help you in your weakness when you don't know what to pray for as you ought. And it's at this point of weakness when Christians don't know what to pray as they ought that the Spirit specifically helps. He says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness he himself, the Spirit himself, intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. The Spirit's help comes in the form of intercession. Right? He, he meets Christians in their weakness with the ministry of intercession. And I love these words that are here. For us, beautiful words that the, the Spirit, seeing and knowing the weakness of Christians, prays on their behalf. For us, Paul says. Not just for him as an apostle. For us, Christians, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Spirit intercedes for us, he says. And how 
does he do it? With groaning. This is the third groan that we've seen in Romans chapter 8. And it joins in those other groanings. It shares the groanings that we've seen already. There's the groaning of creation, longing for the revealing of the glory of the children of God. There's the groaning of the Christian who is longing and hoping and waiting for full and final redemption of our bodies. Where we are then, again, revealed as children of God, finally and fully. And like those groanings, the Spirit joins in. The Spirit himself groans. And like those groanings, creation groans, but it's not an audible groaning. The Christian groans, and how is it? Eagerly, but it's inwardly, not an audible groaning. Here we have a third groan. It's not audible groaning, I don't think. He says that it's too deep for words. Too deep for words. I don't think that it's articulate speech. That's what he's getting at here. There's the absence of vocalization. In other words, when he says that the spirit groans with these groanings too deep for words... He's not saying that this is some sort of private prayer language that the Spirit is doing within you. It's not speaking about speaking in tongues. That becomes more clear when we look at that gift in other places, right? In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which there's lots we could say on that specific gift. But what we know clearly about that gift from those places is that it's not distributed to every single believer. This one is. <laughs> This groaning is for every believer, or it would pull all the assurance away from it if it weren't. But clearly, he says, this is for us. He's going to say, this is for the saints in 27. So this is something that's going on in all true believers. So what is this groaning that's too deep for words? It's not articulate. It's not a private prayer language. It's not speaking in tongues. It's, it's groaning. I think from the hearts, we're going to see the word heart knows the hearts of Christians. Verse 27, it's groaning from the hearts of Christians for the will of God. Wanting and desiring the will of God. And Christians should pray for, for their life, their whole being to be conformed to the will of God. For God's will to be done as far as they know it in their own lives and on this earth. And the Spirit helps that. With some groanings that are too deep for words. Or the Christian will go to prayer and not know what to ask for as he ought. Or not even know how to say it. And so the Spirit will take up that cause and intercede. Or the Christian who's even too weak. The emotions are so high that there's just inexpressible things that they can't put into words. And, and the Spirit prays and groans in those situations. Perhaps it's a bit like a, a young child just learning to speak, talking. And they could come up to me and they could say all sorts of things and I would have no idea what they're saying. But mom comes over and they know the private language of this child. And they're like, they can interpret for you. Like, yeah, they just said they want this, right? That happens all the time. Like, it could be something along those kind of lines. One, one pastor, one author says it this way, that the Spirit fixes our prayers on the way up. Surely this is part of the Spirit's help in prayer. He, he takes our weakness... And he takes our weak prayers and he translates them and fixes them on the way up. He helps when we have no words. He cries out within our spirit, Abba, Father, when we're in pain and we can't cry anything but Abba. He assures us in our pain and our suffering that we're not abandoned, but we're still children of God. But I think that the spirit's intercession is even better than that. What I just described is the spirit's intercession with us. It is a helping 
our prayers. It is a joining our prayers. It is kind of, in a sense, a, a co-prayer. The Spirit's intercession shouldn't be limited to that, though. The Spirit's intercession isn't only co-praying because I don't think it's dependent upon co-priors or co-prayers. The Spirit's intercession, I think, can also be independent of co-prayers. I think inherently, thinking about the definition of intercession is that it's not necessarily dependent upon someone else. We're going to see Christ is an intercessor in verse 34 in chapter 8 later on. That's apart from us knowing and hearing and doing anything there. He is that. And so here's some thoughts on why this intercession is not dependent upon us praying along with him in the spirit. Uh, most of these I received and, and heard first from, from Tom Schreiner in his commentary that's excellent in Romans but if you notice in the text here, the action is clearly whose? Spirits. It's the spirit who intercedes. There, there's nothing in that that makes us think that's dependent upon us praying for the spirit to intercede. Paul doesn't give a call to pray here because when you pray, the spirit will intercede. He just says the spirit does this. And notice the emphasis that he places on this. The spirit himself. Why, why do that? Why say the spirit himself? I think it gives us a clue. The Spirit himself is doing this apart from whether we are or are not. Or in verse 27, God knows the mind of the, not the Christian, but the Spirit, indicating that it's the Spirit that is interceding independently of the, other, of the Christian, of the co-prayer. And also the, the Spirit's groaning. This is the third groan. All those groans are independent groans. This Spirit's groan is distinct from what we saw in verse 16. There is a ministry of the Spirit that's bearing witness within us, with our spirit, that we're children of God. None of that kind of language finds itself here when we're talking about the Spirit interceding for us. So it seems to be a distinct intercession apart from that bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and having us cry out, Abba, Father. And the problem that Paul presents that is present here is that Christians don't know how to pray as they ought, don't know what to pray as they ought. What's that best fixed by? It's best fixed with the Spirit's prayer, not with the Christian, but for the Christian. And it fits the idea of intercession fully. So Christian, I think here's what you have. Not only one who intercedes with you, but one who intercedes for you. The Spirit is interceding for you, fixing your prayers on the way up, surely, so that there's no passivity. We have all kinds of exhortations in the scripture to pray. He's going to say it in, in Romans 12, be constant in prayer. Pray without ceasing, he says to the Thessalonians. But the spirit isn't dependent on our praying for his ministry of intercession. Praise God. So when we have a famous missionary... Adoniram Judson Wright, after the death of his wife and his daughter, when he's in the, the, the pit of despair, he goes into a tiger-infested jungle, lives in a hut by himself, digs a grave ready to die. That's where he's at right now. And you know what he says? He says, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. And what I think we can say and affirm in that situation is, you are saying that thing, but the Spirit was interceding for you. 
So that in the coming years, which was true of this, when the spiritual interest in the country started like rising and people all around him started thinking about who is this God? It rose the spiritual interest. He was ready and he was able to finish translating the New Testament and get it out to them because he didn't stay there. That wasn't his work. I think it was a product of the intercession of the Spirit of God. Christian, do you think that the Spirit will do less for you? He's interceding. Listen to the word for us with deep groanings. Take heart in knowing that you're suffering, that you're groaning, that you're waiting, that in all that groaning, that there's another one who groans with you. He groans as well. This groaning of the Spirit is help in our present lives, in our present suffering, in our present groaning. It's help that strengthens us in our hope for future glory. We can settle our very unsettled souls at times. When we think that God is the great unknown, we can settle our unsettled souls with the thought that we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit is interceding for us. We can have hope in the midst of our suffering and groaning, and we can wait with patience when we can't see the will of God because we can know, independently of us, the Spirit is interceding for us. And this ministry of intercession from the Spirit of God is a ministry of perfection. He intercedes with groanings, but these are perfect groanings. The Spirit's intercession, unlike our praying... We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Unlike that, the Spirit's intercession and praying knows no such weakness, right? He intercedes perfectly, specifically. Verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Like God, he searches hearts. And what dwells in those hearts, the Spirit that he's placed in them, as he searches those hearts, he, he, he knows the mind of the Spirit that's in those hearts. The Spirit that's interceding. And, and what is the Spirit's interceding like in verse 27? It's, again, for something. It's for the saints. That is those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who place their faith and trust in Jesus for their justification, for their righteousness. It's those that the Spirit indwells. And he says that the ministry of intercession by the Spirit is for the saints. And it's what else? According to God's will. So the Spirit, what the Spirit is asking, how the Spirit is interceding, is he's asking what the saints would ask if they knew what the Spirit knows about the will of God. But the Spirit knows the will of God and he intercedes for those saints in accordance with it. There's perfect alignment with God's will here as the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to that will. I wonder if that intercession is effective. Like, no wonder we're going to get to verse 28 after that, where all things work together for good. Because we have a Spirit interceding according to the will of God. And the Spirit is no ineffective intercessor. Saint, that's the intercession. 
that's being made for you. God's will is not frustrated in our lives because we're weak. Our weakness is no obstacle to God fulfilling his will in and through us because the Spirit helps us. The Spirit intercedes for us, and the Spirit intercedes for us specifically according to the will of God so that it might be done in our lives as God desires. Saints, in the composition of your life, a composition that's going to have all sorts of notes, probably more than what we desire, of groaning and notes of suffering and notes of waiting and longing and hoping... Do you wonder sometimes in the middle of that composition when the, the keys go into a really minor side, if, if you're going to make it to the end where we can put SDG to the glory of God, we're going to make it to God's glory in the end, you can take heart. Take heart by knowing the Spirit's ministry, that He indwells you and, and He has this ministry to you. He carries out a ministry that is truly, as Paul has repeated a few different times, for us, for you. So the composition of your life, Christian, saint, one who is a child of God, is going to be SDG in the end. Because right now, God is the one who helps you. Help was written in at the start. Help was written throughout so that you'll make it to the end, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Jesus, help. It seems silly to say words after a sermon like that, and I'd rather just be quiet together and Holy Spirit ask you to pray your perfect will for us. May your perfect will be done in us, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.